Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best in every way. An aggressive woman is just seen as gender transgressive. Whereas an aggressive man is confirming our ideas about his gender. The point of my book is how socially constructed these differences are and how damaging the extreme, rigid, and binary conformity to these differences, how unhealthy it is. God, can you show me how to trust? How you grow again? This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory. We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma. The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So, take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. Straya Shamali, it is so good to meet you. It's very lovely to meet you both today, too. Thank you for having me. The opening scene of your book starts with your mom throwing plates. I love that scene. Can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about that scene? Sure. Um, I got home one day, I was maybe 14 or 15, and she, my mom was standing on the terrace outside of our kitchen, which was a level up from the ground level, and she had a stack of china you know, you eat on plates, like you eat together on plates, you you don't break them. And so I got home and she was tossing them, as I said, like Frisbees off the side of the building into the air, very calmly, one after another. I was watching her from inside and I thought, wow, this is not a normal kind of everyday afternoon activity here. I'm just getting home from school and my mom is throwing all of our plates out into the air and where they're crashing and breaking. So she came back in and I sort of looked at her and thought it was probably not a great time to ask why. And she just looked at me and she said, how was your day? And we never talked about it. She just broke all the plates and then came in as though nothing had happened. And so I write about that because it was such a, a such an important example as I matured, as I got older, about anger and the lessons we teach our children in the home and the way we learn to express anger, particularly as women. You know, she took pride in being a wife and a mother and taking good care of everyone. And she was a firstborn Catholic girl, uh, converted to Catholicism, which is a like next order of of good Catholic girl. And she would never dream of expressing anger in a way that was considered unladylike, uh, selfish, cruel, disruptive. And so in throwing the plates, she did something that a lot of women learn to do, which is to 
externalize the anger, but in a way that doesn't break relationships. She didn't get angry directly at my father. She destroyed these symbols of domesticity. I mean, she wasn't breaking like random objects in the house. She was breaking plates. And so it just seemed like it was a good encapsulation. And I was already 15. And so I asked her 35, 40 years later, almost in my late 40s, do you remember this? Do you remember this event? Because we never talked about it. And she laughed so hard. And she said, that's the only one you remember. She goes, I got really good at buying really cheap plates because I threw a lot more plates than the ones you saw on that day. It was very funny. And I said, well, what were you angry at? She goes, probably I was angry at your father because it was often the case that I worked really hard all day. And then when he came home, everything looked peaceful and I looked very like calm and pretty and I had dinner ready and he was dismissive of everything and of my time. He would show up late or maybe just not be respectful of that. And I think that's something that women in heterosexual marriage grapple with all the time. The feeling of being taken for granted and not having reciprocity in a relationship. And in the end, if you can't make demands of simply pay attention, respect what I'm doing, respect my time, you don't have an egalitarian, healthy relationship. I love that you brought up that this is a problem we see in male-female heterosexual relationships, because that was one of the first things that kind of started this journey for me. I have several family members who are married to same-sex partners and spouses, and I started wondering what it would look like for them to have children and how they would divvy up roles without these expectations and cultural norms on them. And and this that's literally where I started. And that was 10 years ago, kind of wondering about this. And it makes me ask the question, what is the difference between male and female anger? Well, I mean, the point of my book is how socially constructed these differences are and how damaging the extreme, rigid and binary conformity to these differences, how unhealthy it is. So I always start with the premise that we're, we're much more alike than we are different, certainly in terms of gender, and that every human being, we wouldn't be here otherwise, feels anger feels negative and positive emotions. Some of our, we we teach our children how to express emotion first and foremost in highly gendered ways. Most families are um, homogenous in terms of race and ethnicity, most, Mm. and they're operating within this small little, what I think of as a governance unit. They create their own society. And the first point of difference in that society is whether a baby is born and then identified as a boy or a girl. And so I start the book in early childhood socialization because what happens is that adults, parents will look at a baby and if they think that baby is a girl and that girl is acting in an aggressive, demanding way, even as an infant, so she's crying and she's being difficult, they will attribute her negative feelings to sadness or anxiety or vulnerability, and they will respond to her by rewarding that that kind of um, ang- anxious behavior. But if they think the same baby is a boy, they will then categorize that baby as angry and aggressive in masculine terms and not vulnerable. They will not respond to the boy in the same way. And that teaches lifelong lessons to every, and that continues in different ways. But in boys, the difference is that when boys express sadness, that is the emotion that's considered feminine. 
And so in the same way that girls are policed and penalized and disparaged from expressing anger, boys Mm -hmm. are treated the same way when they express sadness or other feminized emotions and, and expressions. So anxiety, fear, sadness, you know, boys are not free to, to do that either. And so those differences uh, become strengthened in institutions like schools and sports. And for young girls, simply being assertive or aggressive, neither of which implies anger necessarily, right? Simply being assertive and aggressive can elicit a response from an adult that is punishing and scolding. We see is that girls, for example, are they're asked to use their nice voices far more often. And they're socialized to always put others first. Don't interrupt, wait your turn, say please. Whereas boys are given a lot more leeway to not have as much mm-hmm. self-regulation. So when they disrupt or tell jokes or interrupt, those are seen as markers of masculinity. And in school, those patterns become institutionalized in very dangerous ways. So a young black girl, even as early as kindergarten, who is assertive or um, maybe aggressive in the same way that a young boy or you know, particularly a young white boy might act, is considered belligerent and is disciplined um, much more harshly right away. You know, young black girls are five to 10, to 11 times in some states more likely to face that kind of institutional disciplining um, than her white peers. And that behavior that is so disparaged in her is seen as in, it's like leadership potential in a young white boy, right? That disruptive mm-hmm. behavior that a young boy might have will be called rambunctiousness and not belligerence. And um, that just yeah. continue, that has a very long tail in all of our lives. Yeah. And I, I saw that. That's certainly my experience. When you were talking in about a female aggression, I was reminded of two times I got feedback from a male teacher. One time was my senior English class. I I've always remembered that and I'll I'll forever remember that. And it changed me in in, in sure. the ways that I interact with people. I, I was said, okay, then I need to become smoother if my teacher's calling me out on this. More recently, we just finished some construction on our home and the contractor we hired used phrases like, well, I'm not sure how familiar you are with construction. You should probably talk to your husband about There's that. so much of that. Yeah, the, those those types of biases and those those are so well documented. They're so tiresome, you know. Like taking your car into a garage, you're charged four hundred dollars more than a man. Like uh, finally, my husband and I have a strategy now. Um, when he is aware that I have stopped talking, and he then realizes it's because the person we're talking to is not talking to me, right? He's not looking at me, not asking me questions, deferring to my husband, he stops talking entirely. Mm-hmm. He literally will just stop. Or he will say, what do you think, Soraya? And he will defer, he will flip the conversation over. Wow. But, you know, the effect that it has when you realize that this person is not respecting you or your intelligence or your knowledge or your ex- expertise is to withdraw. The other thing, too, that I think boys, brothers, uh, fathers, uncles, first at home, again, first at home, what they don't realize is that very often a girl or a woman, because we're socialized to to be more polite, won't say absolutely not outright. You know, they'll say what they believe with maybe 
a question or what do you think or how do you feel about this? But in Mm -hmm. fact, even if a woman says very clearly, no, I don't want that. The response Mm -hmm. is to try and change her mind, to persist, persist until it's you're so exhausted that you concede. And I remember talking to one of my daughters when she was 14 and she goes, you know, the problem with these boys that I know is that they'll ask you 10 times, you'll say no 10 times, and then you're so tired, you'll say yes, and they'll think that's consent. And it's not consent, it's acquiescence, because you just want them to go away. And that was when she was 14. She already had, she already knew that, right? But I think that we can reach the age of 50, 60, and still many women don't appreciate that. They don't appreciate the fact of how much work they have to do for people to pay attention to what they're actually saying. I find myself bending whenever I'm angry to avoid being unpleasant because like with that contractor, for example, I expressed my anger. He dismissed it. So like your mom, instead of getting angrier at him, I got angry at everything else. And so my anger was displaced. Then I, I had to fire myself because I, I was, getting so angry at my kids and it wasn't their fault, but they were much. No, you punched down. Yeah. Because I was, it was easier for me to be angry at them than it was at this contractor. And so when my husband took over and started talking to him, like literally the first conversation he had with our contractor, Nathan just started, like he yelled at him. He got very angry with him because he was being critical of me. Can you imagine? Yeah. I literally looked at him dumbfounded and in an awe of how freely he expressed his anger. And then the contractor respected him. He didn't belittle him or dismiss him like he did me. Yes. He respected him. And that made me, that made me angry. If yes. I had yelled at him, it would have been worse. So I've adapted and learned to redirect yes. my anger. But we have to. Yeah. Right. And what you just described, I think is extremely familiar to women, particularly women who are like, I'm a, frankly, quite aggressive person. I have no problems with it. I grew up with brothers very close in age to me. We fought and then we made up and we moved on, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, and, and, and sometimes we just fought for the fun of it. Like it wasn't even fighting because we were pissed off at each other. It was just something to do because we were bored and it was like 1980, right? So have at it. But a lot of people are uncomfortable with that, right? With just that kind of dynamic. But what happens in corporate spaces, schools, or um, businesses, corporations, C-suites, is that an aggressive woman is just seen as gender transgressive, whereas an aggressive man is confirming Mm. our ideas about his gender. Men who express their anger are rewarded for it because it's manly and because they're supposed to be leaders and they're supposed to take control and they're supposed to dominate. And all of that contributes to people's trust in them. And in fact, when a man gets angry in an argument, more people are likely to change their mind to support his argument. But the same thing for a woman has the opposite effect because every time she acts that way, she's confounding these stereotypes. And so the tendency in the culture is to punish her for doing that. And all of this, of course, when it moves from the home into any institution, becomes fully intersectional. Mm. If you are a white woman and you express anger, let's say you're a white politician, a woman, mm-hmm. you are likely to be portrayed uh, according to stereotypes that 
show you as a crazy person. If you are a black woman, it's angry black woman stereotype. If you are a brown, ethnically mm-hmm. like ambiguous woman like me, I could be Mediterranean or South American. I happen to be from the Bahamas. Nobody even knows what that is. They're like, is it Barbados? Is it Barbuda? Like nobody cares, right? But if you sort of are in that that role, you're more likely maybe to be sexualized. Mm-hmm. She's hot and spicy, you know, like th- that kind of language. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're of Asian descent, chances are that you're perceived as passive and mm-hmm. docile and pictured as sad as opposed to angry. And so all of these... And, I will add also that ageism is really interesting, right? Because that also begins to play a part. If a little girl gets angry, a lot of people, I don't know, this really is something, a constant source of irritation, but people who film their young daughters throwing a temper tantrum, and then it becomes a kind of entertaining to watch her throw a fit. And, and then she goes from being kind of cute in that acting out like a, a spoiled princess to being a hormonal teen, to being a high maintenance bitch to being a scold and a nag. And so there are all of these kind of age-specific dismissals of a girl or woman who might express legitimate and justifiable anger. But all of those stereotypes are dismissive. Yeah. Okay. So when you were saying that, it reminds me of the boy knocking down the tower that you described in your book. Mm -hmm. Whenever you shared that, I was like, this is what happens with me and my sons. This happened when my eldest daughter was maybe three or four. She was in a preschool and in the morning parents would bring kids and instead of just dropping them off, there was a period of transition and kids would build things and get comfortable and then parents would leave. And so every time this happened, this child, this boy's parents were also there. Um, and my daughter would go in every morning and she would build a castle and you know, blocks and ribbons and sparkly things. I mean, there was anything in the bucket that was nearby, she put in this castle. And every morning, this boy knocked it down without fail. It was his morning routine. Mm -hmm. And it was very frustrating to her that this was happening. And so I thought, okay, well, let me talk to my daughter about how to be a good citizen. And, you know, how can she, what can she do about this problem? And so the first thing she tried, uh, I said, okay, well, maybe you can ask him to stop. And that didn't work. The words, nothing. The words meant nothing. Then she she was bigger than he was. So she tried body blocking him, like just protecting the castle. And he always found a way around it or hit it with something. Then she was really getting frustrated. And mind you, the parents are standing right there. It's not as like they're just not paying attention or they're paying attention and they just are not responding. Then the teacher suggested she build the castle maybe somewhere else. Maybe that would distract him and he just wanted that space. And that's when I really thought, hmm, this is not not good what's happening here. And so I think I talked to the parents and their response was more or less, oh, but he can't help himself. He's a boy. Boys are so destructive and look, it's so tempting. And I kid you not, they went through this litany of platitudes and gender stereotypes. And I thought, my God, how do you say in preschool that you're building a rapist? Like literally you're teaching this boy to ignore everything that this girl is doing and saying to protect her space and to establish boundaries. You can't say that in preschool. And then I was very aware that if I became angry, I would be the problem. And that's something a lot of women do, which Mm -hmm. is uh, they preemptively shut themselves down so as not to be seen as the problem. 
I also realized that if my daughter got really enraged, like if she really kind of acted out, her behavior would then become the problem, right? And so it just really struck me that we were failing both of these kids. We were creating an environment in which he was allowed to run rampant and control the space and define what was acceptable. And she had to adapt to that. And she had to fold her own needs and rights and feelings into herself and somehow just go along and be implicated in his emotional development and dysregulation. Like everything we know about young children is that boys and girls are actually equally capable of self-regulation. But frankly, in the United States in particular, in cross-cultural analyses of preschool preparedness, adults don't believe that. So in a whole series of studies done in Asian countries, boys and girls are expected to self-regulate equally, which means that in those countries, preschoolers, boys do just as well as girls. That's not true in the United States, where we just never stop saying boys will be boys. And so the expectation that boys and girls can equally control themselves and be expected to control themselves is a really important one. That example in your book really stuck out to me as well. I have a boy and a girl and they're both elementary school age. Even now I'm, I'm noticing they're already being socialized differently to have different roles in relationships and how they interact with each other. Yeah. And I think something as I was reading, I really, really appreciated your authenticity as you kind of reflected back on your experience as a mother mm-hmm. and different examples where you're like, wow, I'm really proud of myself for handling it this way. Or, hmm, I wish I had handled that differently. Right. And what advice do you have looking back over your experience as a parent um, for parents who are wanting to be aware of these gender um norms and expectations and how do we parent our boys and our girls what advice do you have you know the first thing i'll talk directly to mothers first Mm -hmm. the bar for mothers is so fucking stupid Mm -hmm. it's so high it's so unrealistic it really is it's so absurd that the first thing is to realize that this level of mania that the culture has cultivated, you have to resist it, which is hard because in fact, you want to do the right thing for your children, but you can never do everything and you can never do everything perfectly and bad things will Mm -hmm. happen. And that's really hard. It is. Right. So, so I think the first thing is, I I would never have had this language myself, but compassion for yourself. You're only human. You're trying as hard as you can. You will make mistakes. That's thing one. The second thing is we have the right to not be expected to do everything alone. And I think it is still true when it comes to the most anxiety-provoking, difficult work that parents do, women are doing it. That's very clear from studies, not just anecdotes. There's a big difference between giving a kid a fun bath and being responsible for monitoring all food intake to make sure that the kid has the right nutrients, is not consuming food that they're allergic to. Like those are two qualitatively different things, you know? And so being able to to distribute between parents, and this is why 
non-hetero parent, parental uh, parenting and relationships are, are different. In those situations, people are forced because they're not in that sort of gender factory of heterosexual traditions. They're forced to talk about things. They're forced to negotiate who does what. And we in heterosexual relationships have a lot to learn from that. But the minute you start talking about who does what, then you start talking about intimate inequality in a heterosexual marriage. And that is really problematic for people because maybe in fact, they are not, they don't have a good relationship and they, you know, the woman doesn't have the right to demand that there is more equality in the use of unpaid time and leisure because it is a gift of leisure that women give men. A lot of men are working, they're working more, but there's a big leisure gap, right? So there's time poverty, there's a leisure gap, and then there's the paid work gap, all of which create this constellation of intimate inequality that's extremely difficult to manage and that contributes to the larger societal inequality that, that we that we see. And so I think the second thing is ask for help and know that you have the right to demand that there be help. Reciprocity is one of the, a lack of reciprocity is one of the number one reasons that women say they get angry. They feel taken for granted. They're stressed and exhausted. The third thing is realize how socialized we are to mask our own anger from ourselves. We use minimizing language. I'm tired. I'm stressed. I'm at my wits end. Um, it's nothing really. I'm just irritated. Um, I'm, I'm, I have my period. Like women will say anything before they say, you know, I'm really pissed off because I'm tired of being the last person who cleans up every room in the house at the end of the day. Right. They don't do that because in fact, we're taught that that's selfish. And studies also show that men in heterosexual relationships also think that's selfish. They don't see that as reciprocity. They see it as a woman being selfish. And so what we do, which is what you just described, is we express it in different ways. And particularly in heterosexual relationships, what women tend to do is describe their anger as either fearfulness or sadness, because those confirm gender roles. And they're not transgressive, but they also don't, they're, they're retreat emotions, not advance emotions. Anger is an advance emotion, because in order to be angry, you have to believe you have the right to make change. You can see the change and you think people around you need to contribute to that change. Neither sadness nor fear does that in the same way. Do you have any advice specific to parenting girls and parenting boys? You know, one thing that I, two things I should have said in your last question, which is related to this. One is I try and talk about this quality of emotional competence. It's not anger management. It's not gendered. It's just trying to grow healthy people. We, we don't teach ourselves. We are never taught this sort of metacognition. What am I feeling in my body right now? What is happening in my body? What is my body telling me? What are my emotions telling me? We don't label emotions for kids. We don't say, let's talk about what hap what's happening to you right now. Boy or girl, it's irrelevant. You know, we want to grow people who have a, an understanding of themselves so that they can have better relationships with a, and healthier relationships with other people so they can articulate the way they feel. They understand that their emotions are giving them information about the world and their place in it. 
right? Like we wouldn't be here if it weren't for anger. It's the emotion of self-defense, right? It's how, when we see a threat, when we feel a threat to our physical safety or to our dignity, it, it tells us, hey, time out, something's bad is happening, right? And so my question is, why do we sever that from femininity? Mm-hmm. Why is it that we take this signal emotion and we say, we're going to punish you if you admit to this emotion or exercise this emotion? And by the same token, totally different, again, but the same mechanism, we do that to boys with sadness. Yeah. So I would say, think about the ways, not just in which you use language with children, mm-hmm ungender that language but really think about what you're modeling as yes. well like it's one thing to know something intellectually it's another thing to live it every single day in practice mm. which can be very hard and frankly it requires the whole family to be invested in it yeah. because if only one person is trying to do it on their own it it is more work and more exhaustion and more stress um so the first thing i always say is Whoever you're co-parenting with, married, unmarried, intergenerational, you know, have, put yourselves on the same team. Understand that you actually don't need to work at cross purposes. You're trying to achieve a healthy, happy family, a healthy, happy children, a healthy, happy you. So agree that that's what you want and then talk about how you're going to get there so that when the dynamic comes up, which it will, you can pause, step out of it and say, you know, we're doing something. We're showing these kids right now. A pro- like In this pandemic, everyone is worried accurately about the more than million women that have been forced out of the labor force. Yeah. Right. And like that was evident from the minute this started that that was going to happen because it's happened in every other epidemic in the 20th century. It was predictable. And that, that was no shock although it's horrifying, mm-hmm. right? But my question is, yeah. what are kids at home watching this happen thinking? Are people talking to them about why it is that mom is no longer going to work and being paid, for example? Probably not. Who wants to talk about that? But if you don't talk to boys and girls and children about why that is openly, they're just going to think, well, that's what women do and that's what men do. Men have to give up everything except being ideal wage-earning money Mm. machines, right? They have to produce all that money for us. And women have to do all this other stuff. It's unpaid and effective because naturally that's how it works. And that's more bullshit on top of bullshit. And it's harmful to to both parties. One of the things that I talked to my friend Cindy Dawson about, you would love her, y'all would be best friends, is that my husband was a feminist before I was a feminist. He was for women preaching and teaching Mm -hmm. in churches his whole life, whenever Mm -hmm. I believed adamantly against it. And he still, though, is a man who has absorbed all of this cultural language and expectations. And I am still a woman who has absorbed all this culture. So we both, Mm -hmm. all of that, we both have to work hard And these and disrupt one another's rhythms in order to mm-hmm. to work toward equality. Yes. And so for us during the pandemic, the language that your book helped me say was my career and life cannot exist in the margins of yours. 
That's and that helped friends. us shift things because I was working my work schedule mm-hmm. around my husband's work schedule instead of us both working around one another's work schedule and prioritizing that. And our kids did see that and they, they were absorbing that yeah. and they, they were seeing that tension yes. and they saw the result of us having those angry moments and then coming out on the other end, more egalitarian uh, and happy when, when we're like that, we're a lot happier. And, and happier. Yeah. And you're less stressed and tired and resentful, so much happier. And the other thing too, that I think I remember writing about this years ago, it really stuck, stuck with me then it sticks with me now. It was part of the book, but because we're all socialized in this very patriarchal world, right. And this, there aren't a lot of things you can universalize in the world in terms of women's experiences. Our experiences are really radically contextual and patriarchy uh, changes depending on the context, right? I mean, a white supremacist heteropatriarchy in one place looks radically different than a caste system based patriarchy in another place, right? Like that, those are two different mm-hmm. flavors. Um, but one thing that is almost completely universal is that women and girls do the bulk of unpaid work in the home, and that when children do chores, it's gendered. So mm-hmm. girls will do the feminine chores and boys will do the masculine chores. Now that's interesting because the chores that boys tend to do can also be commodified more easily. Typical 1950s example, paint a picket fence or mow someone's lawn or walk someone's dog. You can charge for all of those. A boy can go get those jobs when he turns 15. A girl who's been vacuuming and washing dishes, she's not going to go to the neighbor and say, hey, you want me to stack your dishwasher this week? That'll be $25, right? And so boys and girls are doing gendered work that have different sourcing into paid work. Boys will get paid an allowance tied to his work much more often. Boys will be paid more for the chores that they do. And these aren't decisions people make. It's literally what just happens as the default in families all over. And that then sets the stage at extremely early age for sex segregated occupational wage and wealth differences that carry on through our lives. So also just being more deliberate, let's make a chore chart in our family and let's rotate those chores. Nobody owns taking out the garbage. I hate taking out the garbage more than I can say. Like if I were living by myself, I would be a disastrous, unhygienic mess because I don't like taking out the garbage. Okay. So my husband, who is really neat, I am not neat. It's one of the reasons I turn my camera off. Look at how messy my office is. But he and I were like, we have three daughters. I got to take out the garbage. I got to take out the garbage, you know? And so he makes dinner and I take out the garbage. But that would never have happened if I hadn't gotten pissed off about the wage gap than 15 years ago, right? I wasn't really thinking about chores when I had three-year-olds. I just tried to sleep. One of the things that I really liked whenever you were writing about hormones, female and male hormones, it was so fascinating to me that you learned that there isn't an actual biological difference between male and female hormones of aggression. That was so shocking to me that our differences. Wasn't that amazing? That is wild. Okay. But our culture, how we're trained to respond to danger is what changes our hormones. Is that right? 
we, we have different responses to, to danger. So there's the model of fight or flight, which everybody has, right? You, you, you freeze, you freeze, you fight or you fly, right? That's like a, that, that happens in your body because different hormones are your response to threat. But women actually have a different response in threatening situations very often. And frankly, yeah. I think it's because women are often threatened by people they love and know in their own homes. And that response mm. is different. It's actually a tend and befriend response. It's a de-escalation response. It's not fight. It's not flight, which is more what, what happened with a stranger. Yeah. It's more, let me talk you down off of this ledge so maybe you won't hit me, right? That's separate from the issue of hormones like testosterone. The reason I focus on testosterone is because so many people will say men are just more angry because they have testosterone, which is just not true. First of all, testosterone doesn't make people angry. Something happens and then you have an emotional response, which is anger. That has nothing to do with testosterone. Testosterone does lead to changes in behavior. And this is what was so interesting because it used to be that we believed that someone with a lot of testosterone was more aggressive and more physically dominant. But in fact, the trajectory of that relationship is um, bimodal. So if you act in a very physically aggressive, dominant way, your testosterone goes up. It's not the opposite way around, right? And so I cite several studies that talk about this dynamic because one of the questions is, think about the way we socialize boys and girls to use their bodies as young children, right? Boys are actively... Um, encouraged to go farther in a playground, to take more physical risks, to get up and sc scrape themselves off when they skin their knees and go do the thing again. Whereas a lot of people with girls want to pull her on the lap and sit her down and say, oh, are you okay? Is your knee all right? Don't do that again. You might hurt yourself. You know, and we don't, we don't, for example, let a crawling girl go as far as we let a crawling boy. And so the physical engagement of boys generates more testosterone in their bodies. These are really, I think, super interesting and complicated questions about what we think masculine, like male and female masculinity and femininity are. Because the, the thing about saying boys and men are angrier, which by the way, turns out not to be true. Women are angrier for longer periods of time and in more intense and sustained ways. The thing about it is people really want gender essentialism and biological essentialism. You know, it's 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 what drives so much racism. It's what drives so much transphobia and homophobia. And it's what drives gender discrimination. You know, that idea that we're just born this way. We're just born this way. And this is the, the way the world is yeah, born. Yeah, and then our podcast, what we talk about is that people take that and then make it godly and say, not only are we born this way and this is the natural order, but this is God's order. And that's incorrect. I grew up going to Catholic schools. I went straight through college in Catholic schools. And when I was 11 or 12, I really, I remember I was very earnest. I would go to, to church and I would read the catechism. I was the kid who was just reading the catechism all the time. And I wanted to be a priest. It had never occurred to me that I couldn't be a priest. Never, ever. Like it never oh. entered my mind until I was about 11 and 
we were on our way to church and I said to my parents, you know, I think I want to be a priest. And my father's response, my father, who I knew loved me and had great faith in me, was to laugh. He burst out laughing. And his laugh was, damn, what is that? And my mother turned and looked at me and she goes, why don't you talk to the priest, the father Peter was his name. So I did. And he was like, well, you know, only, only, only men can be priests. And I remember thinking, wait, the only difference between me and my brothers that I can tell is really and truly they have like penises and I have a vagina. And so are you telling me that only people like only because of the penis, you can be a priest? Literally. And that was, and when he said yes, I went home and I said, I'm not going to church anymore. And if I am, I'm not participating in any of the services because it's not the place for me. And my parents respected that, you know, but I did spend the next 10, 12, 15 years trying to figure out if it was sexism or if I was getting something wrong. And I concluded that it was sexism. I have continued to conclude that it's sexism and discrimination it has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with your beliefs and like nothing to do with it. It's rank sexism. Can you talk about like how how that um, abuse of power with gender expectations and, and gender roles, how how that could potentially lead to violence towards women within that context? Oh, my gosh. Well, there's so many, so many things. The first thing that I always stress in the context of religion in particular and patriarchal religions in particular is that and I and I think a lot about Catholicism mm -hmm. because of this priesthood issue. But every time you take a child into a mm -hmm. place of worship where women are not allowed to speak with authority and in ministerial roles and publicly, you're teaching that child that what women has, what girls and women have to say is not relevant, not relevant to the community, to the society, to your political life, to your relationships, and that everything that um, is important and godly has to be mediated through the speech of men. Those are not lessons that stay within the walls of any place of worship. They infuse families at the dinner table. Okay. They infuse the workplace. They infuse politics at every level. And so that's a really important lesson to debunk, right? Find yourself a place of worship mm -hmm. that respects girls and women as equals and gives them the authority to care in a public way that is not necessarily as a mother. We have these gender stereotypes that are binary and polarized, and it creates these roles. And within these roles, I would say probably one of the most dangerous is the, the idea that men are supposed to protect women. You know, a, a central pillar of masculinity is this idea that men will provide and protect. And that idea of masculinity is completely yeah. dependent on women being vulnerable. So to provide for women means they can't provide for themselves. I mean, if a woman can provide for herself, what does she need a man for? And to protect a woman does several things. One is it ignores the fact that most women are hurt by men in their own homes. So who's going to protect a woman against that, right? That's a very patriarchal idea of protection. And secondly, that idea of protection is leveraged for racist, xenophobic violence and has been forever. You know, protecting a white woman in America is how we end up with lynching and gun violence 
and police violence in communities that are not thinking about how those constructions of gender contribute to anxiety, distress, and violence against people who are othered. And we see that play out politically all the time at a national level. I think it's extremely dangerous uh, to have these masculine gender ideals that, again, depend on women being vulnerable. Can't we find a way to construct honorable manhood that doesn't depend on women being dependent and vulnerable? And this is the problem, I think, with people wrapping their brains around Me Too. Me Too confronts both of those. Because first of all, it says, I'm at work and look at what's happening to me. I cannot be at work and operate and compete as an equal if people are abusing their power in this highly gendered, sexualized way and I'm being pushed out. And I want to work because I want to earn money because I want to be self-sufficient and I want to provide for myself and my family. That's thing one. But thing two about that is, and oh, by the way, you men who are protecting me and my family, you can't even do that. You cannot protect me at work. You cannot protect me on the street. You cannot protect me on the bus. You cannot protect me in school. And so all of a sudden, when women say me too, that gets tessellated in the brain into this really serious threat to men's identities. I'm failing on both fronts. Yeah. I'm failing to protect. And do I need to provide? So what do you end up with? You end up with a lot of men in crisis denying the reality of Me Too because to accept the reality of Me Too would be to accept masculine failure. That again reinforces this idea that's really important to me in season two that we discuss is when we hold so tightly to rigid gender views, it is destructive to males and to females. Oh, 100%. It leads to mental health and physical health problems in both genders. And- I'd love to talk Uh for you to talk a little bit about how the suppression of anger in these cultural norms, one, affects women's health, physical health and mental health. And then two, how does it disproportionately affect the health of women of color? The name of the book, Rage Becomes Her, we chose it because it operates on a few levels. But one of the primary levels is the way in which your emotions become really the material in your body. And so the suppression of anger in women, I don't want to suggest direct causality here, but is right. is implicated in an enormous range of maladies that we think of as women's illnesses. So mental distress, certainly, that's a very gendered proposition, but anxiety, depression, self-harm, eating disorders, chronic fatigue, autoimmune disorders, um, all of those have the quite consistent element of the people who tend to have those in the most, you know, documented and extreme forms score very high on suppressed, repressed, distorted anger. Um, And then the second thing is that for women of color, that is compounded because discrimination causes a great deal of anger that has nowhere to go except maybe inside And so that results in all of these illnesses. Um, And in fact, one of the issues, so for example, we prototypically think of eating disorders as a malady of um, middle, upper middle class white women, right? But we don't think of disordered eating in terms of obesity in the same way for the same reasons, right? We punish obesity. We, 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 We are fat phobic and we punish obesity in all kinds of ways in the culture, whereas we reward frailty in white women 
and thinness, right? So the dynamics are very, very different in terms of how the society supports one version versus another, right? I, I don't want to suggest that they're the same because they're very different. Mm. But this is all compounded by bias in the medical system, right? And so um, Black women will wait far longer in an emergency room to be seen than a white man, for example. Part of that is because a white man doesn't have a problem getting angry and saying, I've been in here for 20 minutes, I'm bleeding, get me some help. When he does that, somebody goes and gets help. But women, all women, don't do that. They think if I if I get angry, they're going to punish me, they're going to make me wait longer, right? So they don't do anything. They get angry or they get mm-hmm. sicker, they take longer to get that help in that context. Same thing with making a doctor's appointment. You wait longer for a doctor's appointment. Waiting in the waiting room for a doctor's appointment. Women just are expected to wait longer. Wait a little longer. Your time is not as valuable. But in diagnoses, Black women routinely are ignored, dismissed, misdiagnosed. And so their health comes are terrible. And so we see that especially in maternal mortality rates. You know, maternal mortality rates all over the world are going down except in the U.S., Ours have been going up for years. That is mainly black women, mainly black women dying from in, from the ravages of institutional racism and sexism at every level of society. And then they reach their apex in maternal death. Your your words are reminding me of, of Serena Williams' birth story. She had or she has a chronic health condition and she's trying to explain that to the doctors and the doctors dismissed her. She's a famous, powerful athlete she knew she knew exactly that to me was the the best piece of evidence for the disproportionate health care that's received by black women after birth and my my best friend dara she chose to have a home birth because of that she said i am more likely to survive a home birth than i am to survive a hospital birth for her first kid and then her second kid she got robbed of that because there were some health issues and she was genuinely afraid for her life when she went in to give birth to her second daughter because she was concerned obviously being yeah. a black woman giving giving birth yeah. that she was more likely to die than every white woman on that floor. Oh, that's right. And that's not like an irrational fear. It's a real fear and I'll compound that with this information. Because of hospital mergers, the Catholic Church has bought and now manages many, many more hospitals than people appreciate. And this is highly problematic for women who are pregnant and in distress, miscarrying, or maybe having difficult childbirths, because the ethical guidelines for Catholic churches adhere to Catholic beliefs about when life begins and abortion and you know, even, you know, whether a woman can get a DNC if she's endangered because she's miscarrying. I mean, the stories in some of these hospitals are so frightening. And I had two high risk pregnancies and, and was at a Catholic hospital. And I remember thinking, I am not feeling safe at all, but this is where my doctor was. And, you know, those are considerations. And so I think your friend is right. And she knows the statistics and she understands what the risks are. I mean, one of the questions you asked about what parents can do with children. I think the tendency, and it was just my tendency, is to think in terms of personal actions. And the older kids get, the less relevant that is, because kids are subject to society and to all the institutions that they join. And we know that when kids join institutions, when they go to school, when they start playing sports, when they do these things, they become much more interested in conforming to expectations and stereotypes to make the people around them happy. So they will start behaving in very gendered ways 
that they may not at home so that they can get along with everybody else and they can make their coach happy and make their teacher happy. All the examples we were talking about. So I, I really believe that parents who are oriented in this direction need to do what parents who are not oriented in this direction do, which is to shape institutions, be actively. And it's not an easy position to be in because it means that you're the troublemaker, right? But in fact, what I found over the years was many more people than I realized felt the way I did, but nobody was saying anything. And so when I started saying things, people came out of the woodwork and and were like, I've noticed this too. I don't want this to happen. Why are we doing this this way? So I, I always say, you know, the thing about anger is it brought me into every happy, healthy, creative feminist community I've ever been part of. Everyone got to the place we are because they got angry about something. Angry enough to try and look for allies and like-minded people. And so you can find, you, you can build communities so that you aren't the outlier, so that you aren't the lone voice pushing back against incredibly highly resourced, traditional, embedded cultural norms and institutions. You know, you can do that in school. You can do it in sports. Um, and even if you don't change something in the moment, you are modeling behavior that all these children see. They see an alternative to what they're being told they have to do. When you said that, it reminded me of a quote from Mary DeMuth. I don't know if you've read her book, We Too. I am interviewing her also in season two. She says, uh, anger fuels reform and reform fuels justice. I, I like that I'm pairing you two together. I didn't realize just hearing you talk just now how, how correlated both of your messages are. Anger is a proper and appropriate response. It is good. And just as males are taught to leverage and harness it to become a leader and to change their, their teams and become more efficient or whatever leadership quality was praised in that yes. environment, we too can be angry and anger is good. We can accept our anger at the injustices that are done to us and have that fuel change so that our communities do become safer. Hospitals do become safer. My school district that I work in becomes a better place for minorities and women and people on the margins because my anger fuels me toward those people mm -hmm. and towards these systems. And, yeah. And at the end of the book, I sort of talk about steps people can take because I'm not you know, I'm not saying everybody needs to get really angry and explosive and destroy things. That's not what we're talking about. You know, I mean, the point about rage is by the time you feel rage, there's so much dysfunction already, right? The point is not to get to the point of rage by understanding how you're feeling, giving it a name and making meaning of it. But I also talk about the necessity that everybody diversify their social circles. If you are in a homogenous environment, Ask yourself why, right. because especially now with the internet, that doesn't have to be the case. Educate yourself. Do not expect other people to educate you. It's nobody's job to educate you. You know, everybody needs to, to think, what do I need to do to understand people who aren't living the way I'm living, people who didn't grow up the way I grew up, people who have different needs, concerns, desires. I mean, Another thing that I think a lot about my childhood religiosity was the golden rule, which I have zero patience for. I'm like, I, 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 
I think, you know, I mean, I've heard this over and over again, and I agree with it. Don't treat people the way you want to be treated. Treat them the way they want to be treated. How are they mm. asking to be treated? They may, like, the way you're treated may be irrelevant to them. I'm like, this golden rule where you treat people the way you want to be treated, frankly, a lot of people live with being treated really badly, and they think that's acceptable. Why would I use that as a standard? All over our country, people are saying, stop treating us this way. You know, I think a lot about this controversy over defund the police. Defund the police was never meant to be a public policy statement. It was the language used by activists embedded in communities that desperately need help, and they need a reallocation of resources. You know, when over 50% of the city's budget are going to the police and the police are killing people on the street, you're like, well, what are we doing as a society, right? And so the, 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 the connection, the connecting point with defund the police, I think, comes back to this issue of what does everybody want? Everybody wants to feel safe in their communities. We want people to feel safe. We want 13-year-old boys to walk around safely. We want nine-year-old girls to walk around without being catcalled or catcalled by the police. I have lost track of the number of times I've had police catcall me or follow me or stop me for some reason, right? That does not make me feel safe. And so the question is, how do you create a society where people feel safe? And everybody understands that we all have the right to feel safe, but maybe your solution is not the solution for my community. More police is not going to help this other community, right? So what are this community saying? They're saying we need resources to go to mental health, people trained in helping people with mental health issues. We need, you know, after school programs for kids. More funding for schools. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are the types of things that make me think of the corrupt nature of the golden rule. This, this is what we need to be aware of as, as people in our society and how much our binary way of thinking impacts how we interact with each other and how much it is limiting both to men and women who really buy into that way of thinking. I loved on your website that you had condensed those 10 steps to emotional competency and efficacy. I felt like that was a really good snapshot of how we can start to change how we think and really open our minds to this. Can you elaborate a little bit just on those those 10 steps or even just the thinking behind creating those 10 steps to help kind of our, our listeners become a little bit more self-aware resulting from that, like kind of have a little bit more societal awareness about how these things work? Thank you for that question. The, the first thing is, I think that you know, if you come from, as we do, a Western intellectual framework, these the, the dualism and the binaries mm-hmm. govern our way of thinking about everything. So in the book, what I really talk about, it's not just male, female, black, white. It's rational, irrational, emotional, logical. Uh, you know, they're all of these types of binaries that undermine people's ability to be healthy to have healthy relationships and to build safer, healthier, more just societies. And one of those is victim perpetrator, right? That's a binary. The other thing about these binaries is they suggest, even graphically, when you think of a binary, equality, that they're two halves. So in religious terms, complementarianism, the idea that men have roles and women have roles and that those are equal, and we know that's not true. It's simply not true. They're not equal. They're hierarchical. Men are dominant. They dominate all public resources and space. 
and leadership, et cetera, et cetera. They're the heads of households. So let's just do away with the lying that these are complementary and equal roles in any shape or form. And so you end up in these binaries with a feminized half and a masculinized half. You also, I think, need to, no matter what, appreciate that those are never equal. They're not in competition, right? And because if you think about the fact that I've been saying girls and women are punished for being angry and boys and men are punished for being sad, that sounds like an equivalence. But it's not if you consider the context in which because men can be angry, that contributes to their leadership and women are systemically disadvantaged in racialized ways in the society as a result. I don't want to perpetuate false equivalences. I want to say very clearly, I'm not suggesting that these are equivalent. Having said that, though, I think it's unhelpful to cling to the framework of binaries, which is why in the actions I focus on things like emotional competence for everyone. Everyone benefits if we are healthier emotionally and being healthier emotionally requires rejecting the very rigid demands of masculinity and femininity. It also means rejecting the ways in which gender constructs racist ideas, which is a whole other topic that we haven't totally touched on, but it definitely constructs racist ideas. And so when you lose one, you lose its power to do the second thing I just talked about. Because if you're not conforming to those ideals of masculinity and femininity. So in terms of anger, I've said men derive power. They derive different types of power. White men derive political power and citizenship rights, but black men derive criminality. It's still powerful because they're seen as powerful, violent criminals. And then they end up in jail, not in Congress, right? So that's a different way um, of seeing the way anger plays out. Same thing for black women and white women in their anger. Right. It's very different being thought of as maybe crazy versus being thought of as a violent threat to society. If we can think about the way those construct each other and we step away from this idea of binaries and we think, what would it take to be emotionally healthy as young children? What kind of adults do we want to grow? We want to grow people who are self-aware, who value interrelatedness. We have a real toxic individualism in our society. How do we value care and nurturing and our relationships with each other? not just interpersonal, but societal. How do I care for my neighbor? How do I care for my society? How do I care for my environment? That's very different from individual self-efficacy and domination over the environment. Dominionism is not good for anybody. And so I try and focus on steps like that. And my basic premise is this butterfly effect premise, which is that you take what happens at the level at which you can operate. What are you capable of? You're tired. You're working two or three jobs. You might have an elderly relative you're taking care of or children. What are you capable of? You don't have to go start a political organization. Maybe you can bake something for your neighbor, or maybe you want to paint and express something and share it with people. Do the thing that you're capable of and that makes you happy and that builds that community around you. And that will be different for everybody. You know, some people it is starting a political organization. You know, the women who started Black Lives Matter they were reviled in the United States as terrorists. The rest of the world recognized them as incredible human rights workers and activists. You know, the difference between 2015 and today, you can see what happened last summer. Tens of millions of people around the world protested against white supremacy and racial violence. And that probably wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. 
And they did it because they were angry and sad and grieving and they found each other. Yeah. And I like that you brought up the Black Lives Matter movement because I think a lot of times when we're fighting these fights, it feels lonely and it's hard. And that's what leadership is. That's what my friend Shanna told me. That's what leadership is. If you feel like you're tired and lonely in a fight, you're probably a leader. And to keep fighting the fight that you're called to fight in and that injustices you've experienced that you have the capacity to write, keeping that at the forefront of your mind. For me, I keep that at the forefront of my mind whenever I'm tired and it pushes me back into my community whenever I don't want to, because the fighting is, is too much, but I have the capacity to fight it. And so I will continue to fight it. And then some days I won't have that capacity. And so I will withdraw and that's okay. It's okay for us to give ourselves permission to, when we have the capacity to do more, we do more. And when we don't, we do that's less. That's right. And both of those and things And you pass the baton. You step back and someone else steps forward. But I do think, uh, Sarah, there's something important about what you said, which is that we're always looking for permission. But in fact, sometimes, as you said, you want you to give yourself permission. And I think what's very hard for a lot of women as they get older, as they're invested in their lives, as they do the things they're supposed to do, as they care for the people that they care for, is the frightening fact that maybe they, the people they care for don't care for them in the same way. If I say I am resentful or I'm tired or I refuse to do this anymore, what will this person I've been caring for say back? That's a big risk for people, right? And it's worse for women who are economically dependent. That's just a reality. Women who are economically dependent can't take those risks the same way. Women who are in abusive relationships cannot take those risks the same way. Up to a quarter of American women live with intimate partner violence. What are they supposed to do? You know? And so I think that that, again, is where the personal is political. Those are social issues. Those are not issues that can stay behind closed doors in the privacy of someone's home. We like to think that they are, but in fact, they're not. That's what we're trying to do with this podcast is just start those conversations and normalize talking about it so yeah. that people don't feel so isolated. Yeah, I think that's the other thing, too. Anger, anger. we're taught that anger isolates us. And what I'm saying quite clearly in this book is that it doesn't have to. It can bring you together. It can make your relationships more honest and egalitarian and healthy and it can help you build bridges um, and find communities. It's not isolating at all. It's probably one of the more social emotions because you're making demands on the people around you. Whenever I became more disruptive in my marriage is yeah. how I say it. Um, it was like year eight <laughs> is when I found my voice. And as I became more disruptive, our marriage grew exponentially. I mean, our connection deepened, our ev literally every aspect of our relationship got better. The more disruptive I was, or the, the better I was able to communicate my anger, the better we all got. And that's counterintuitive. Yeah. That's that, that because of the way we're socialized, what you just said feels counterintuitive, even though in practice, people like you and I know that that is true. Right. But for some, for some women, it won't be true. 
for some women, the hard truth is that the men they're with will reject them. But then you have to ask, what were you putting up with anyway? And then we have this economic problem, which a lot of women I know are in these marriages. They may have been disruptive, but they have no other choice because their males became violent or their husbands uh, suppressed them or tightened Uh their freedom, removed their authority over their bank accounts. They've punished them as a bad parent punishes a child Uh in this way. And so then we have this problem that we have to address too, that being disruptive has real consequences and it's risky, just like you said, which is why we need Congress. We need powerful policymakers who can right that wrong for us and create spaces for women to safely remove themselves from marriages and relationships Mm -hmm. that are bad. Listeners of the All at Once podcast, just pause this episode right now and go to wherever you buy your books and go buy Rage Becomes Her because I mean, I, I prescribe it and I, and I do not say that lightly. Like almost every week, I'm like, just go buy that book. I promise you it'll explain everything. Well, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. If people want to engage with you more outside of the podcast and outside of your book, where should they go? I have a Twitter. Uh, I share uh, my thoughts sometimes and articles and articles that I write in Twitter. It's at S-C-H-E-M-A-L-Y. Um, I also have a Rage Becomes Her Instagram account where I try and share news and commentary. And I have a website where I where um, I just sort of have an archive of other books that I've contributed to or, or things that I'm working on. Um, and it's SorayaShamali.com. Before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon, which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us. You can also support us by buying merch or sending us a one-time gift via Venmo. This podcast is time-consuming and costly, and we are grateful for your partnership as we continue this work. Visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and I also want to recognize the All at Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director. Molly Bays is our social media manager. Taylor Diggs, our intern. And Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown who loaned us a professional podcast space, which helped make our lives easier and more balanced and also exponentially elevated the quality of the podcast. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs and Friendswood. They sponsor us. They're a great little boutique here in Friendswood. Check them out. Super cute stuff. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one, and her voice is beautiful. She's an up-and-coming artist. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. Thanks for listening. Thank you.